Father in heaven, we do ask for your help this morning as we turn now to your word gathered together on this Lord's Day. Would you encourage us in all the ways that we need encouragement? Would you strengthen us in all the ways we need strengthened? Would you challenge us in all the ways we need challenged? God, we do pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine truth to us. Show us wonderful things in your word, for there are many wonderful things to be found there. We pray now for the proclaiming of truth and the receiving of it, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd be near to us in this moment, that you would change us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, a group of, of our elders and some of our wives went down to Richmond on Friday to visit with Garrett and Carrie and to pray over them and over Eden. Um, and at one point, one of the sisters, uh, Shannon Sutton, shared a, a few paragraphs written by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I believe these were words that were given to them in a time of need and, and uncertainty in their own family. Shannon read... Uh, this portion to us. It's a meditation from Charles Spurgeon on Isaiah 41 verse 14 that has a line in it that says this, I will help you, saith the Lord. I will help you, saith the Lord. Here's Spurgeon. This morning let us hear the Lord Jesus speak to each one of us. I will help you. It is but a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I have done already. What, not help you? Why, I bought you with my blood. What, not help you? I have died for you. And if I have done the greater, will I not also do the less? Help you. It is the least thing I will ever do for you. I have done more and I will do more. Before the world began, I chose you. I made the covenant for you. I laid aside my glory and became a man for you. I gave up my life for you, and if I did all this, I will surely help you now. And helping you, I am giving you what I have bought for you already. If you had need of a thousand times as much help, I would give it to you. You require little compared with what I am ready to give. Tis much for you to need, but it is nothing for me to bestow. Help you? Fear not. If there were an ant at the door of your granary asking for help, it would not ruin you to give them a handful of your wheat. And you are an insect at the door of my all-sufficiency. I will help you. Oh, my soul, is, it, is this not enough? Do you need more strength than the omnipotence of the United Trinity? Do you want more wisdom than exists in the Father? More love than displays itself in the Son? Or more power than is manifest in the influences of the Spirit? Bring near your empty pitcher. Surely this well will fill it. Haste. Gather up your wants and bring them here, your emptiness, your woes, your needs. 
for this river of God is full for your supply. What can you desire beside? Go forth, my soul, in this your might. The eternal God is your helper. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. I am your God and will still give you aid. Church, we all need help this morning. Eden needs help this morning. The Kell family needs help this morning. You and I, each with our own needs, with our own empty pitchers, need help on this eve of Christmas. And as we are freshly reminded of our need for that help this Christmas Eve, we must remember that the message of Christmas is exactly this. I will help you, says the Lord. That, that's it. That is the message of Christmas. That is the message of the incarnation of the very Son of God who became man, Emmanuel, God with us. The message of Christmas that we remember today and tomorrow that we've been rehearsing this entire Advent season is exactly this. I will help you, says the Lord. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> We've been doing a, a series here as a church through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've actually already preached through this section that we're going to look at this morning. We've preached through 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But what we're going to do, we decided it would be a helpful meditation to focus just on one verse this morning to circle back to this verse that we've already covered and to circle back and consider this one verse together on Christmas Eve. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read the text for us together and then offer three aspects of the incarnation that we see here in this verse. Three aspects of Christmas, three aspects of the incarnation that we can glean from this one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Three aspects together that point us to the reality that God is our help. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The first aspect of Christmas, the first aspect of the incarnation that we observe here in the text is the humility of Christmas. The humility of Christmas. I've said it already, we celebrate at Christmas the incarnation of Christ, the moment where God became man and dwelt among us, God with us. That's what that word Emmanuel means in the song that we just sang. It means God with us. But that story, and indeed all of our existence, <clears throat> begins with God in his glorious perfection. Our story begins with God in his richness, in his 
perfection, in his extravagance. Our text says, though he was rich, yet he became poor. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in a letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae. He writes this, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. By him, by Jesus, all things were created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There he's referring to to everything in existence, whether marvelous, spectacular, otherworldly, supernatural, heavenly beings. Whether stars and planets and galaxies. Well, the, 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 the people here in this room and all that we observe around us, Jesus created all of it. By him all things were created, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, God the Son, is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit as our one God, equal in power and essence and wisdom and glory and might. Jesus is God. Jesus created all things. All things were created for him to give him glory. And he holds all things together. We sit here this morning because Jesus holds all things together. The author of the book of Hebrews says it this way, Jesus is the heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God. Friends, Jesus wasn't merely a a good teacher, an instructive rabbi, or a religious leader. Jesus wasn't merely a good guy or a paradigm of niceness or a morally upright model for people to follow and learn what it means to be morally above board. Jesus certainly wasn't just the founder of a religious sect or a rebellious disturber of the peace or a firebrand for a good cause. No, Jesus is God. He was rich, abundant in all respects beyond our understanding or imagination. Paul says it later in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2 verse 9, in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, as you see little nativity scenes and as we think of Jesus born in a manger at this time of year that we celebrate, as you think of that, that is the fullness of God dwelling bodily. Fully God and fully man. An old creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan creed says this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Light from light. God, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. And the glorious humility of Christmas is that that God became poor. That God laid down his life. That God laid down, didn't, didn't lay down his godness, but willingly added to himself humility and humanity and became poor. 
think Garrett mentioned this in a recent sermon as well, but we're all aware of, of rags to, to riches stories, right? Stories that, that are very inspiring from us that someone, though they're poor through their hard work, they end up amassing a, a great fortune or succeeding in various ways in life. We're aware of those kinds of stories, rags to riches, and those are inspiring to us. But even more powerful, even more rare, even more inspiring are those stories where someone goes from riches to rags intentionally. This is the supposed origin story of Buddhism. The story goes that Siddhartha Gautama was a prince who sheltered himself from seeing a sick man or a, an old man or a dead man or a holy man. One day he wanders out from behind the palace walls and he sees all four of those things and he's changed. He then gives up his riches for poverty. You may think of Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, a story set in London focusing on class inequality. It's about a prince who switches places with a common poor boy. The story of Cinderella who goes from riches to rags back to riches again. These, these stories are rare, but they're beautiful and they are inspiring. But these stories are mere shadows whispering to our hearts about a story that I think we all long for to be true. These stories are billboards and signs, flashing neon signs showing that there's something in our hearts that desire for that to be true, that desire for the, the, the rich to become poor for our sake. It's, it's a longing in our hearts. And friends, I want you to know that, that Christmas isn't just a holiday. It is the ultimate version of a story that deep down you long for. Christmas isn't just a holiday, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a message, it's a, a story, a ver, a, a ultimate version of a story that whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, that your neighbors and your friends, whether they would call themselves a Christian or not, that there's somewhere deep down that wants that story to be true. And we gather here this morning to say that story is true. That Jesus went from riches to rags it's the it's the truer and better version of that story not just a, a wealthy member of a measly royal family but God himself infinite incalculable riches at the right hand of God the father the creator of all things the sustainer of all things though he was rich he became poor not only was his glory greater but so was his humility. There's a verse in a song that we'll sing tonight at our evening service. It goes like this. It's a song called Sing We the Song of Emmanuel. It says, come we to welcome Emmanuel, king who came with no crown or throne. Helpless he lay, the invincible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. I love lines like that in Christmas hymns that picture the willing poverty of our king. King who came with no crown or throne. The invincible one laying helpless as a baby. The one who made Mary, now Mary's son being held by her. The willing humility of very God to become man. He who was rich became poor. 
Friends, does, doesn't your heart long for that? For the high to reach down low? Don't you want that someone to sacrifice for you? Not a religion where you work to satisfy an up there impersonal God, but to have a God who would come to you, a God who would show you his love in such a tangible, physical way that he would become man to pursue you and to save you. Friends, that's the heart of Christianity. Christmas is a reminder that God will help us. That he who is rich would humble himself and become a man. As we look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that is a great summary of all that we celebrate at Christmas. The first thing I think we see there is the humility of Christmas. He who is rich would become poor. But there's more for us to consider. There's more for us to think about because we also have to ask the question, why? Why would he do this? Not just the fact that he did do it, but there's the why question of the incarnation that we must note in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 as well. Why would he give up all of that? Why would the very creator of the universe, he who was rich, become poor? For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Friends, secondly, let's consider the motive of Christmas. The motive of Christmas. We see the humility of Christmas and him who was rich becoming poor, but we also see the motive for Christmas there as well. And as we read that verse again, maybe you noted that there, there's two motives getting given in the text. There's, there's a theological motive and there's an anthropological motive. So there's a God-oriented motive and there's a human-oriented motive in the text. The God-oriented motive there is grace. For you know, Paul says to the Corinthians, for you know, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know his grace. Why did God the Son do all of this? Why did he go from riches to rags? Because he is a God of grace. He is a God who delights in bestowing his unmerited favor on his people. He is a God who delights in showering mercy he is a god of who is full of and delights in showering unmerited favor on his creation which leads to the human oriented motive there it's god's grace the god-oriented motive but then he says it's for your sake that he became poor it's for your sake for my sake and for your sake that he laid that down and became poor. You see, friends, Christmas isn't just another holiday. It is the solution to an unsolvable problem. So Christmas is the solution to an unsolvable problem. For your sake, he became poor. What does that mean? Well, the biblical story is that though we were originally created to, to know and to love and to serve God, we have rebelled against him because of sin. And that sin ultimately brings death, not, not just here speaking of physical death, but of spiritual death and spiritual separation from God. And we have to start there with Christmas. Or we have to start there with Christmas or you just don't understand what the story is about. 
We all need to remember that behind the, the trees and the cookies and the parties and the presents and the happy songs and even the nativity scenes and the church services and the readings of gospel narratives, there stands the enormous problem of our impending death. You see, God created us to, to know him and to exist in that relationship with him, but the Bible says that ever since the first sin in the garden, the sin of Adam and Eve, that that relationship has been severed. And so we not only sin, but we are sinners. Even the most kind of us still has an angry thought. Even the most generous of us still has a jealous or an envious thought. Have we not? Even the most pure of us has looked lustfully at someone. Even the most calm of us has lost our temper when things didn't go our way. We are corrupted, stained with sin. It's in our very nature, fallen as our nature is, to sin. And there's nothing we can do about it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but, but... Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for your sake, he became poor. Christmas isn't just a cute birth story or a fun religious holiday. Friends, it is a rescue mission. That's what Christmas is. It is a rescue mission. Jesus said it in Luke uh, chapter 19, he says, uh, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why I'm here, on a rescue mission, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was born that he might die. Our, our sin can be dealt with only by a perfect sacrifice in our place. That's what Jesus said. That's why he who was rich became poor, born in a manger. Raised and living a perfect life without sin. Dying a substitutionary death in our place. Dying as our substitute in our place. Taking our penalty for our sin on himself. That our sin might be dealt with. That we might have forgiveness of sins. That we might be reconciled to him. That we might be redeemed. That we might be regenerated and made new and born again. He did it, and he died, and then rose again so that all those things that might be true, that we might also die to our sin and rise to new life with him. We'll see it here at the, in a moment at the Lord's table with the bread and the cup. This is a reminder tangibly, physically, visibly, that he laid down his life. Christmas that we celebrate leads to this table. It leads to Jesus living a perfect life and then dying in our place, giving his body and his blood, that we might turn from our sins and trust in him. This is why he came. None of us will understand the message of Christmas rightly or interact with it appropriately if we don't understand that we are lost and we need rescuing. And so friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and, 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 but this is something that obviously it's a part of our culture and we celebrate Christmas and it's always on our calendars every year, I want you to know this one thing. That this rescue is nothing that we can do for ourselves. Christmas points to this rescue mission 
We have a problem that none of us can solve. Christmas is God reaching into our world to solve the very problem of sin and death that we can do nothing about. So if you're, you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, know that fact. That Christmas is Jesus coming to rescue you. For your sake, for my sake, he became poor. And the call is for all of us to turn from our sin and to trust in him. And dear Christians here this morning, even if you've celebrated Christmas 20 times, 40 times, would you reflect on it afresh this year? Not only should our understanding of Christmas move us to, to praise him for bringing life from death, but it's also a reminder that this very same God is the God who loves you and cares for you now. Do you see that? The Christmas birth, this is what the whole Spurgeon quote, I think, at the beginning was about. The, the Christmas birth is a picture and a promise of how God continues to interact with you. It's not just this thing that happened one day long ago that we celebrate today. It is a picture and a promise of how God still interacts with you today. So when you look at that nativity scene and you see Jesus wrapped up, remember that God still loves you that way. Remember that God still knows you that way. Remember that God can still reach you just where you are. And so that means if you have an exhausting season at home, a stressful year at work, a, a difficult few months in marriage, a time of dryness or doubting spiritually, even wondering now if your faith can sustain the things that are in front of you, Certainly the concern that we all feel for the health and healing and well-being of those that we love. Dear saints, look at the nativity scene and see Jesus. Because God knows our deepest needs and can meet them. He can surely meet any other need that we have. If God can reach into our world, into our hearts, to deal with the impossible problem of our sin and impending death, if he can solve that, he can solve anything. If he can meet that need, he can meet every single need that you have. If he has proven his love for you in that way and shown his nearness what he wants us to take away from that is not just that he did that then, but that's the kind of God he is. He is the God who not just laid down his riches to become poor so that we would know it at that one moment in time, but that we would never forget it and that we would never be out from the grips of his grace. This God knows you and loves you and cares for you. He proved it by sending Christ. Cling to him right now in this season. Look to his word. Call out to him in prayer. Spend time with others who love and follow Christ that you might be mutually encouraged and be reminded that this God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God, how would you prove to us your love? And he says, I proved it by while you were still sinners sending Christ to die for you. That is our guarantee that we never have to wonder, does he love us? He says, I've proved it already. We never have to wonder, will he be there when I need him? He says, I've proved it already. We never have to wonder if he's going to hold us 
through the storms of life. Because he said, I've, I've proven it already in giving Christ. Which, friends, leads us to our third and final aspect of what we see about the incarnation and what we learn about Christmas here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the goal of Christmas, the goal of the incarnation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's a statement of purpose there in our verse. So that the purpose of this riches to rags story, the purpose of God becoming man, the point of the incarnation of Christ was so that we might become rich. The goal of Christmas is that you become rich. This isn't talking about material things in this world. This isn't talking about wealth. This isn't talking about finances. This isn't talking about health. It's nowhere promised to any of us. Rather, the riches that are here spoken of are spiritual in nature. The spiritual reality, the goal of the incarnation is that you get God. That you get him. That you know Christ and that you enjoy him forever. That's the goal. We were created to be in communion with him. Again, but the poverty of our sin has made that impossible. We, the unrighteous, have no ability to commune with the righteous. We, the imperfect, have no ability to commune with the perfect. We, the unholy, have no ability to commune with the holy. Apart from Jesus. Christ, through, through, through that act of him becoming poor, that we might become rich. That act that we celebrate at Christmas, that he came to us, that he might give us his righteousness, that he might give us his holiness, that he might give us his purity, that he might give us his imperfection. What we can never do on our own, he said, that on my account will be given to you. Not something that you have to earn through means of grace, not like a, a slow drip of something being infused into you, but something that has been imputed to us. Something that has been taken from his account and put on our account. And the same way that our sin was laid on him, his righteousness is laid on us. It's for our sake that he became poor. Why? So that we might become rich. Not earned by us or accomplished by us, but accomplished by him and given to us, credited to us. How? By faith. And if you hear that and you say, that seems too good to be true. Yes, indeed it does. But it is true. And that's what Christmas is here to remind us. That's what the incarnation is here to remind us. That's why we call it good news. That's why it was declared at the birth of Jesus. Behold, I bring you a message of good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
But I do want you to note, the text says, that you might become rich. Another translation might say that you could become rich. It's made possible for you to become rich. The man, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus didn't become a man. And then it automatically happened that everyone is rescued from death. That everyone goes from poverty to riches. That everyone is automatically rescued from our sins. No, how can this wealth, how can this spiritual reality become yours? Friends, it requires a response. Not a response of earning his favor. Not a response of, of doing and religious activity to make him love you. He says, I've already loved you. I've shown that. I've proven that. But it's a response of trusting him. It's a response of turning from our sins and trusting him. By faith, receiving the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. By faith. Listen to John chapter 1. It says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You need to know that you're not blessed by Christmas by proximity. You're not blessed by the incarnation by proximity. You don't receive the riches of him who became rich, became poor, that you might become rich. You don't receive those riches, the riches of Christianity by proximity. You're not blessed by being aware of it. You're not blessed by being around it. You're not blessed by even considering yourself a seeker. You're not blessed by having family members who follow Jesus. You don't receive the riches of Jesus by being close to family members who receive the riches of Jesus. Now you're blessed by Christmas by responding to it. You're blessed by the incarnation of Christ by responding to it by faith. By turning from your sins and trusting in him. It's a gift to be received. Again, not worked for, but responded to. And we surrender ourselves to Christ. And when that happens, the Bible says that we become united to Christ. That we become co-heirs with him. As, as Paul wrote to the church of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, that he was the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory. We get that. We get that. What's his is ours. The riches that are his are ours. The glory that is his will be ours. The perfection that is his will be ours. The eternal life that is his will be ours. By turning and trusting in him, by faith. As we surrender to Christ, that's what happens. We become united with him and are co-heirs with him. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If children, then heirs. If we are children of his, then heirs with him. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our perseverance and endurance 
through all the pains of this life and the uncertainty of this life and the difficulties of this life. Paul says we suffer with him and we will be glorified with him. Clinging to him, trusting that he never loses his grip on us. His riches become ours as we repent and trust in him. Friends, Christmas isn't just a holiday. It's a gracious act for your sake that requires a response so that his riches might become yours. Church, we need Christmas. That, that's, that's always been true. That always will be true. But as I stand here today, I'm not sure if I ever remember a time, ever remember a Christmas where I've felt it more acutely. We need him. We need his presence. We need to be reminded that he says, I will help you. Christmas is nothing if not the evidence of the truthfulness of that statement, I will help you, says the Lord. Christmas is nothing if not proof that he knows our deepest, greatest need and that he has shown us that he can meet it. And as such, it's also a promise that if he knows and can satisfy our deepest needs, then he can do so with every other need that we have as well. Whether it's strength or endurance or courage or even faith itself. He says, I will help you and I will be near to you. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for that help. We trust you by faith that you've said it and it's true. You have promised and you are good on your promises. You make covenants and you hold them and are faithful to them. God, may we who are faithless, we who struggle, we who are weak, we who are needy. May we look to Christ and find our strength. May we look to Christ and find our sustenance. May we look to Christ and have our strength faithened, or our, our, our faith strengthened this morning. God, even as we turn to the table, even as we look to the bread and the cup, would you strengthen our faith in new and fresh ways? Would you remind us through the indelible work of Christ being born and living a perfect life and dying and rising. God, strengthen our faith through all the ways that you give your grace to us. All the means of grace that are available to us. God, would you help us? Would you be our help? We know you've said, I will help you. We claim it as true. Help us to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.